Hello, and welcome to the Crate and Crowbar PC Gaming Podcast. This is episode 371, and we're recording this on the 28th of May. I am once again the too hot and sweaty Graham Smith, and I am joined today... By the cool and perfectly dry Chris Thurston. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, it's good to confirm that you're dry, if I'm going to confirm <laughs> on every podcast that I am moist. <laughs> I'm actually surrounded by liquid right now, because I thought I would, like, I think I, thought I need a little energy boost, because I had a heavy dinner, so I had a Diet Coke, and then I thought, well, I don't want to have to go downstairs mid podcast, so I have two beers and a big glass of water, because you must stay hydrated. So maybe I lied <laughs> earlier. Uh, I, I am, I, I think, physically dry in the ways that society would care about, but also pretty well uh, hydrated. And I think that is a testament. I don't know why I turned this into such a, you know, geez, get over yourself, Chris, bragging about all your drinks. But <laughs> I've just started talking and uh, it's just the two of us tonight. So, you know, you, you really can't speak until I stop. And that's going to happen right now. Yeah, you're going to get used to you talking for this duration of this podcast mm. um, because you're the man with the news, for starters. What's the news, Chris? Well, so I understand, as I understand it, there has been quite a bit of news this week, or just happenings in the games industry general. Like there's, you know, um, Biomutant came out and I was really hotly anticipated to have played it. The new Hunt map, I think, is happening. I saw the trailer, didn't understand that. I think Cyberpunk got a new uh, game director. I don't know what that means. It was a Far Cry <laughs> thing. We're going to talk about that. Um, there's some Valve thing that's occurred. There's a Horizon thing that's basically PC adjacent. I want to talk about the Valheim horse. <laughs> it's not Can a horse, talk? Chris. It's not a horse, technically. Uh, um, they have said, the developers of Valheim state, please say hello to Valheim the horse. <laughs> you got and then in brackets, technically pony. <laughs> I, I feel like they're doing doing the brand of pony dirty by calling it a horse. You don't need to round up. You don't need to round up ponies to horses. Ponies are good enough as they are. Why have they bought a pony? So I don't know. So I mean, the so Valheim sold like seven million copies or something. I think it was originally a team of two people, and you know we've we've seen indie kind of booms happen to, to individuals and to companies many times over the years. Um, and none of those people decided to buy a horse for a local riding club. <laughs> and I think that is an actual, that is, that, that should cause anyone who didn't do this uh, and has enjoyed similar success with their indie games to feel profound shame. I think this is the only time that money has been sensibly invested. <laughs> um, and I am calling out, this is a, a Tom Francis call out right here. Where's the horse? Where's the horse called Gunpoint, Tom? Where is it? Why Wait, can't I ride it? The horse called Gunpoint. Did they name the horse Falheim? Yes. <laughs> it's the, the second best thing about this story. <laughs> it is better than spending your money on like a Tesla Roadster, which I feel like has become the cliche right. thing to do. Like if you really want to help the environment, buy a horse. For some pony. local children. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, they... they um, they bought a horse for their local riding club. Uh, according to the, the post announcing this as, as a Steam update, you know, you see more of her in the future. I really like, um, from a kind of just comms point of view, that they had to specify this does not mean we're introducing horses to the game, but it does mean <laughs> that we will go and visit the actual horse we, we bought. Like that level of clarity is... Is great because I mean I got this news because Pip sent it to me and I think every single person 
who will will initially think, oh, mounts in Valheim. No, no. <laughs> How dare you? It's an actual horse called Valheim. I didn't. I didn't read the full post, but I looked at the pictures on it. It did look as if they'd taken a photo of the horse's skin and then like flattened mm. it out as if as if ready to apply to a mesh. Was that <laughs> that? I understand where you get that impression because indeed it did look like they did that. They have a photo of the pony. Let's 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 actually. You know what? You're right. Let's wind back this indie marketing hype hypemanship they're doing here trying to turn this into a horse it's a pony a beautiful pony there's a picture of the beautiful pony munching on you know daffodils in a meadow and then um they're teasing an up- upcoming update which would be called hearth and home and they're teasing it with two small like crops of bigger images one of which looks like a crop of a picture of a fence i guess indicating that maybe some new fences are coming that's exciting and the other one looks like it's either a really close crop on like a linen texture or something like that, or it's actually like the flattened texture. It's it's kind of hard to tell, but it is exactly the same horse as the pony Valheim. Sorry, the same horse. It's the same color. I said the word. <laughs> I said the word horse when I meant color. Good. It's good. That I'm gonna have to hold this this together. Um, and so you're right, Grant. It does look like they they digitized the pony in some way. I, I when I skimmed it, I actually thought maybe they were going to do some photogrammetry or something to digitize the pony and use this as like I thought maybe this was a more lavish expense than than initially it appears that you know they maybe had bought a horse in order to scan the horse to insert it into the game. All future textures, all, for, all future textures in Valheim will actually be created by just taking photos of different parts of the horse pony pony that's what they said right yeah exactly well i mean this is the law now valheim the game takes place across the back of valheim the pony um in microcosm you mentioned at the beginning that it sold something like seven million copies it has Mm. sold specifically 6.2 million copies i lied (laughs) i rounded up to horse (laughs) (laughs) because uh well little indie studio of five people or whatever it is is actually owned in part by coffee coffee stain publishing mm. which is itself owned by much larger conglomerate um and so they did an earnings call where they said that it sold 6.2 million copies uh they expected it to sell 6.8 million by the end of june mm. and uh i can't remember the the name of of this particular conglomerate but they said that they were in advanced talks with 20 other companies to acquire them this is the, uh-huh. this, the same the same conglomerate that owns like thq nordic and stuff right. like that they they own a lot of companies already uh and they're, they're going to buy all the all the remaining ones and this pony i guess and this pony well yeah i, I guess yeah through, through the network of companies <laughs> they own this <laughs> pony well i mean maybe the riding club owns the pony now i don't know who owns the riding club um Nonetheless, this is certainly the week's kind of, I think, most important gaming news. I, as someone who works in, 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 in games and in, in comms, I wish I could just announce that we'd bought a pony. <laughs> I, I think, like, obviously there's going to be... I Actually, I wish there were comments under this. I really want to know... Oh, there are. And I really want to know, is someone angry about this? <laughs> because I, I'm under generally under the impression that anything you do online, you know this, anything you do online, someone's going to take a huge, you know, umbrage at it. Um, you know, um, 
yes, got it, fine. So <laughs> within within minutes, the reply, no one cares. Everyone's been waiting for an update for months now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like when I when I, I wrote a story about the how many copies it sold, the six point two million, and in that I said, well, I suppose they're not under any particular time pressure to get out the the Hearth and Home update because, mm. well, it's continuing to sell so well. So why why rush it? And people were cross under the under the comments, like, what do you mean? What do you mean? It's been months now without any new content. It's like, suppose yeah, mm. it's it's good game. It's good game. You like cost twenty dollar. It's fine they don't need Have to you ha- yeah. maybe you know maybe if if if, if that is the, the the place the community is situated maybe a dev update where you just say we bought a pony is actually one of the <laughs> biggest flexes i have ever seen like this is this is I, I i had initially taken this as sort of benignly kind of you know like you know a cute way to celebrate success when you're you know a small team with an extraordinarily successful game um now, actually thinking of it in that light, this is an incredible flex, and I applaud it absolutely. <laughs> um, <laughs> we didn't, we haven't, we haven't finished with the update yet. But here's the pony we bought. <laughs> Fucking hell! Like that, I think that you know, you said you know, people buying Tesla Roadsters. I think this has a little bit of kind of, um, you know, id dudes in 1995 with their Ferraris energy. <laughs> you know what I mean? This is how Scandinavians flex. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's it's not exactly like you know John Romero is going to make you his whatever. It's just these 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 nice people are going to buy a pony for a local riding school. Guitar I, solo. Broadly, when I see people talk, when I see stories about um, Valheim's success, most of the people underneath, in fairness, are just happy for them. Like, yeah, people just have the sense of oh, small little team made a good game, very successful, good for them. So it is like, I don't want to paint, paint it as a broadly negative community when it's so far, at least one of the few good ones that I see online. Yeah, no, totally. And I don't want to, I don't want to tarnish this pony's <laughs> big day. Um, his his like, rep. <laughs> her, her rep. Uh, um, Valheim is a, is a, is a lady pony. According to the article, we have to we've had to do a lot of fact checking on this. We've done more diligent <laughs> fact checking on this story than I think anything we've ever covered in these. <laughs> well, let's, so. let's move on to something we can we can be more inaccurate around. Uh, mm. there was, the other news was that a new trailer just dropped, or the first major gameplay trailer for Far Cry Six just dropped. Uh, you've watched it. I mm. watched a leak of some related footage earlier this morning. Uh, what did you think of it? So um, they did a they did a ten minute reveal event. I watched the trailer at the start of it because I, I, I didn't watch the rest. I have no excuse. You're not my dad. This is fine. Um, the, um, the the notes I wrote you'll be you'll be help will helpful helpfully know um, are just the word horse because at one point the protagonist rides a horse. Uh, the phrase uh, Katyusha backpack because at one point. Um, she leans down like she is a mech in Mech Warrior with a back-mounted gun, like squats. <laughs> There's like a sumo squat in the middle of a street and fires, I, I think, missiles out of a backpack, which appears mm. to be a lot of pipes strapped together. And then the only other thing I wrote, which is uh, I made me laugh at the time and isn't going to work in an audio medium, unfortunately, was the phrase CGI in Carlo Esposito. 
<laughs> I see what you're doing there. I, I, Thanks. I, I get that. It works. It um, works out loud. That, oh, I'm real glad. <laughs> um, so, um, um, the uh, this is obviously a Far Cry game. It is set in a a fictional uh, South American country um, called Yara, as far as I understand, um, where you play a young woman who is attempting to. Uh, you know, who joins a sort of uh, guerrilla warfare movement uh, against a dictator played by Giancarlo Esposito of Mandalorian and Breaking Bad and so on. Um, and does this, I from uh, from the trailer at least, so the tra- it, it, so I'll say this, for a gameplay trailer, obviously it was all in-game footage, but it was a lot of cutscenes and it was a lot of fairly staged feeling action moments and that's quite common for far cry trailers where it's just like big dramatic things there's a um there's a lot of smash cuts of of exciting things happening that you can't quite make out um which isn't very helpful in terms of getting a sense of what you'll do there's a moment that i had to go back and replay over and over and over again because i was convinced that there was a sequence where you're swimming or the character's swimming and she gets slapped in the face by a really big sea turtle (laughs) <laughs> um and i was like wow that was in there somewhere but um but it wasn't i i frame by framed it uh this is why i didn't have time to watch the rest of the 10 minutes where the you know the lead uh, the game lead explains the game um i can't i i frame by framed it and it does look instead that what i thought was the uh the 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 flipper of a large sea turtle was in fact the kind of closing jaws of a pivoting alligator or large caiman of some kind (laughs) so it was a it was a more traditional bitey animal far cry encounter um and and yeah i thought like i mean and so from that you don't take a lot from it necessarily big open world presumably there are outposts and maybe an increased focus on wacky homebrew weaponry i got the impression um this backpack seems important um but I think there's necessarily a bit of a gulf between what constitutes like a quote unquote gameplay trailer for a Far Cry game and what you'd probably spend the majority of your time doing mm. in a Far Cry game. Um, and it didn't necessarily give a great impression of that. I think when this is, when this was sort of announced as what they were doing, I was kind of hoping for a bit more of a, here is a mission, you know, type yeah. walkthrough of that experience. So it's a little hard to kind of figure out where it falls in the kind of scope of these games. That'll be their E3 presentation, won't it? That'll be the thing they show to journalists in two weeks' time or next week or whatever that will be embargoed. Um, Like, So I haven't seen the trailer that you've watched. I saw six minutes of footage that leaked this morning that didn't have, you know, proper audio on it or anything like that, but it did show a bunch of the stuff that you just talked about. The, The backpack stuff of like firing missiles into the air that then crashed down. It also showed like a backpack that was like would rocket you into the air and let you hover there about 10 feet off the ground while flames fired out. Like oh, the reverse of... Katyusha backpack. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> a, like an area of effect fire blast that would set everyone around you aflame. Um, so yeah, it seems like the backpack thing is, is going to be a, a big part of it. I, it. It also, every time you use the backpack, it flips into third person to like hmm. sh- show, show it launching off. Uh, which is unusual for Far Cry. Far Cry has been pretty consistently first person in almost all situations that I remember recently anyway. Uh, Do you know what it kind of reminds me of, the backpack? 
this is a weird leap to have made. It reminds me of, obviously it's a very different tone, but it has the same energy as the backpack in Super Mario Sunshine. <laughs> but instead of having like a big hose to go around and solve water puzzles with, it is just a, a gun, I guess, but or a rocket launcher. But it has that same sort of like, uh, now with gadget backpack kind of energy to it. Maybe it's also because the game looks very sunny and colourful. See, I was I was thinking of it more as like a Star Wars bounty hunter type thing. Like it looks like something yeah. Boba Fett would have and, you know, use in right. the middle of a fight. You know, his little jetpack that can also be used to set people on fire with a special attack, uh, you know, which you can then buy the toy of. I mean, well, I mean, I guess, you know, I guess at some point they were like, well, we've got Giancarlo Esposito. Let's also add the gadgets from the Mandalorian. <laughs> see, like, I'm like you where I kind of wanted to see more of like an actual mission in part because I feel quite tired of the Far Cry formula. Mm. Uh, I don't want to go straight into the, to the negative take. Like, the truth is, I've really liked Far Cry games for a long time. The reason I'm tired of them is because I've played all of them, and I've played all of them a lot. Like, it's one of the few game series where I've played almost every entry in it, and not just that, but completed the single player in most of them as well, um, which is very rare for me. Uh, and I really like the outposts. I really like wacky hijinks with a, with a hang glider. Uh, I like some, you know throwing meat to get a dog or a crocodile to go eat a man that's that's mm. fine i'm into that um but it feels <laughs> like there's a real formula to it and they've been quite slow to add new things to the formula like obviously different kinds of pets were a big focus for far cry 5 it looks like it's going to be a big focus again in far cry 6 like crocodiles are back that for example dogs are back that you can use in in fights and the footage i saw i didn't see a lot that looked particularly new and i worry that if if the rhythm of the missions is again hey it's a big open world there's a bunch of outposts you can go kill some animals to craft a wallet or you can do some story missions with that mostly fail in most of the games uh and Mm. i'm not encouraged by what i've seen so far which i'll get on to in a minute but if it's just that again i'm not sure I have the appetite for it, and I'd kind of hoped that because I think I feel like it's been a couple of years since Far Cry Five, and I feel mm. like Far Cry Five was met. I don't know how it's sold, but it f- felt like it was met with a somewhat lukewarm response, at least compared to Far Cry Four and Three before it. Um, so I kind of hoped that this would look a little bit more different than it does, but instead it looks like, like you say. Now we've got a little bit more of a focus on wacky, impromptu weapons, uh, and uh, we're kind of going back to a slightly more serious tone with the villain. You know, Giancarlo Esposito seems more serious than the wacky cult of Far Cry 5 for the mm. whatever the heck was going on with with Far Cry 4, which was very colourful and manic and uh, over-the-top in its tone. But it's but it's that mixture, isn't it? It's that mixture of like ooh, serious actor doing serious cutscene stuff mixed with wacky, silly hijinks in the combat. We are overthrowing throwing a South American dictatorship using a wacky jetpack and a crocodile pet. I I think the mesh of those things doesn't yeah. really work for me. It's interesting because like something I was going to call out in its credit is that 
um it's nice to see uh they they keep sort of telling and retelling similar stories or at least this whole branch of far cry they're always about you know in situ junters or kind of corrupt kind of you know militarized kind of governments that you overthrow with wacky hijinks and collecting stuff um but this this one i i'm glad that they appear to have grounded this story at least in the experiences of someone who is actually from the country that they are you know retaking or whatever in the story that your the main character is a woman who is from this place it's heavily implied and has a connection to it rather than the traditional far cry thing of literally just parachuting in a dude and you play dude mcdudison and you <laughs> go off on this adventure to discover this country that is an analogy for wherever nepal i think in 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 far cry uh four etc and that seems like progress like if you're going to tell this kind of story uh you know adjusting the perspective in that way makes sense however i think you're absolutely right that there's sort of an aesthetic that the games are getting from these settings that gives them uh, access to seriousness when they want it in terms of getting actors to do some big acting in a mocap studio and they'll you know like i thought it was interesting that the the, the animation and and the quality of those performances didn't seem any different in this but i thought that the visuals for people did actually look fairly dated um in the trailer like maybe that's unfair of me but um based on just a first impression but i thought that it, it looked a little you know um or that I, at the very least had seen more convincing um mocap recently maybe actually that's something i would credit resi 8 with actually in terms <laughs> of having scenes where actors act actingly at you while bad <laughs> things happen to your hands which is also a far cry tradition um <laughs> Like, um, you know, I thought maybe maybe the, the standard has moved on a little bit. But what I'm saying is that the aesthetic of these games has always been there to kind of give you access to both. Like, this is both like a kind of, you know, violent revolution sandbox where it's, there's no real, no real stakes. You know, no one's actually really getting hurt. It's a big cartoon. It's kind of Rambo-ish in a lot of ways. And I think this trailer is interesting because it actually plays to that. The, the forces of the dictator have a uniform and a flag that looks more like a evil mega corporation than a standing army in a banana republic. <laughs> um, it's like a white background with a red inverted chevron on it, um, and it, it sort of feel if it has that look of I don't know I don't know how you would describe it, but if you imagine any any open world action game from probably the last fifteen years has a corporation or government aligned faction where they all have suspiciously clean sci-fi uniforms. I think they all have this. Uh, whereas actually Far Cry is typically like, just had like roving amounts of pirates or gorillas or, or whatever. And um, and that look of like, sort of we're getting the aesthetic of this thing, but we're also kind of distanced from it in a bunch of different ways. And we'll, we'll tap into this when we want to get the drama going, but we're not going to let it get in the way of a fun backpack that fires rockets like a pipe organ. Um, it's 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 an it's a weird mix. Like I don't know if anyone who's coming to these games is coming for it to actually reconcile any of that. In the same way that I don't think anyone goes to GTA for a a real meditation on I don't know crime or something. Um, but it's I think as that series has evolved and had so many different identities, it's it's a weird brand to have ended up with in some ways. Yeah, I mean, I, I think 
it works in GTA Five because they're they're giving you a, a cinematic experience. Like they're mm. they're giving you the experience of watching Heat, you know, rather than a, a real crime experience. Whereas Far Cry doesn't have that stuff to pull from. But I feel like they've learned a lot of lessons since Far Cry Three, because Far Cry Three was, you know, Judy McDude bro going in and having his colonialist fantasy, but trying to eat his colonialist cake too. Mm. Uh, and it really didn't work. Far Cry 4, they set it in a more fictionalized place, albeit based on a real place. And you did have. Oh, yeah, links that's right. You did have place. a connection. Yeah. yeah you like did. your pet, you, your parents were from that place. Your brother was the person who was the dictator of that place. Uh, and so you had that connection. Oh, yeah, you are there. right. It's funny and... that I'd forgotten that. I just remember American dude, but uh, I guess that is incorrect. <laughs> And then they, they they kept kind of getting further away from the more I don't want to use the problematic, but I'm going to have to the problematic elements of Far Cry Three, where Far Cry Five was then it's in America, it's this wacky cult thing, it's more outright supernatural, and then after that is I can't remember the name of the game, but it's like the post-apocalyptic one, which is oh, just, yeah. you know, it gets further and further out there each time, basically. Whereas this feels like them, in some senses, having an opportunity to try and reboot the series a little bit, pull it back, tone back some of that silliness, but they've been very selective where they've toned it back. Like It feels like they're going for a more serious villain than they've had in a long time. But they still can't get rid of the wacky pets and stuff because those are the things that people now expect from the Far Cry game. And like you mentioned, oh, the it's a you know a fictional South American country and they have this flag, and I'm glad that it's a fictional South American country. But then that flag is like a physical item in the collector's edition of the game. Oh, come on! <laughs> and so you, so you can hang it on the wall <laughs> of your bedroom, I guess. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I'm, I'm not. I'm not I'm not personally interested in collector's editions, but I get it. Other people are, that's fine. But there is something about, I mean, it's obvious, right? <laughs> like yeah. The cosplay, yeah. cosplay of like South American dictatorship, essentially. Like that's what it feels like. Right. And it's interesting because, you know, you say like the, the, the series has gone on this journey towards absurdity, but that's not really a journey for Far Cry, the series. It is a sine wave. Like, because this is a series that, like, it's also had Blood Dragon in its past. It's also had, you know, I mean, what was it in the very first Far Cry games? Was it mutant monkeys that you were fighting at some point? Yeah, the very first Far Cry kind of went to that place about halfway through. Yeah, exactly. And so it's not like, and, and so really what you have is a series that has always been super wacky, but then Far Cry 2 wasn't. And like, so really that was the anomalous one, I think. I think Far Cry 2 was the one that kind of reigned in and arguably had a lot more to say, albeit maybe simply tonally in places. Um, and I appreciate that it wouldn't be a, a, a bunch of, we wouldn't be a bunch of dudes talking about PC games in the last 15 years if we didn't take this moment to say, Far Cry 2 is a really good game. <laughs> um, uh, thank you for your continued support. Um, but... Um, it's interesting that in 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 maybe you know if their expressed aim is to ground this one a little bit more they're certainly not going back there because as the reasons you stated like presumably people would miss the pet alligator and like it's really hard to to figure out like what statement about anything what 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 praxis is being expressed through the alligator pet really 
necessarily. Yeah. I don't know. We might, uh, uh. Very pretty, though. I like the bright colours. Yeah, I like that it's back to a tropical setting. Like, uh, Far Cry 5 being set in America is less troublesome, but it was also less interesting <laughs> to look at. Yeah. Uh, and so I do like a good tropical setting. Uh, I think I actually my, my favourite game in the series is probably Far Cry 4, where I feel like they struck the right balance between having a very colourful world, silly things to do, and your villain is just like a Bond villain. And not like a... Not, yeah. Not a Daniel Craig Bond villain, but a kind of Roger Moore Bond villain. Mm. Uh, that totally works. You know, you can have a ecomaniacal guy living in a volcano or whatever. And then that doesn't matter. What else is good? What have you been playing? Well, so the game that I will, I will talk about this week is a game that I just started playing um, today because it only just came out. But I'm enjoying so far and it's connected to a, a setting that I like a great deal. The game is uh, Warhammer Age of Sigmar Stormground, um, which is, as you said before we recorded, too many names. <laughs> but what's interesting about the fact that it feels like too many names is I don't think anyone... Well, people may be... Warhammer 40,000 games definitely have names that are too long a lot of the time. Like, you know, Warhammer 40,000, Dawn of War, Dark Crusade, or something like that. Yeah. Um, but everyone accepts that Warhammer 40,000 is the name of the thing. And, and Warhammer Age of Sigmar is the, in the aim of the setting. This is, if you're unfamiliar with, with miniatures games over the last, um, you know, f- uh, five, six, seven years at this point, God, more than that, less than that, let's say 10. Um, it's not though. Um, I'm not familiar. So like for context here, I'm not familiar with Warhammer fantasy really at all. Right. So like. Age of so, Sigmar was like a reboot, right? Of, sort like, of, rules. yeah. It's the, it's, it's the sequel based, um, in a lot of ways. So yeah, so the, the potted history um, with salt removed, for those who care, is um, the uh, the Warhammer fantasy setting that people will be familiar with from Total War Warhammer or Vermintide, if you're into games particularly, or just from the history of Warhammer fantasy generally, um, was retired a couple of years ago. Um, and the miniatures game was rebooted. It is technically like a continuation of the same story and that some characters come back and things are reshuffled, but it really was a new universe, like a kind of planar high fantasy multiverse built out of the old winds of magic from the old setting. And now that miniatures game has been running um, very successfully um, for a number of years um, and matured substantially and the setting has developed a lot. Um, and uh, it in its own right, it's one of my favorite things. I, I am surrounded at this moment by uh, Age of Sigma projects of varying scales. Um, but it's not been explored in games very much at all. Um, it's shown up a few times in some other contexts, mobile games um, and so on. Uh, and there was a trading card game and a digital equivalent a while ago. Um, but Stormground, I think, is the first time that a, I think, a fairly full-fledged, you know, uh, PC game has been made out of it. I, I would say that with a slight air quotes because um in its ui and things i think there's definitely been some some consideration made for the needs of releasing this on mobile i don't think that's a bad thing i don't think it changes its value by any means um but you know it's definitely a a factor in in the way this game's been put together and i think that's a really interesting opportunity for developers because a lot of these characters and factions and things have not been like brought to life in cg and i think for people who really like the setting that's a fun thing to get to see 
Um, so I should explain what it is because it's actually like, um, I think a really interesting, it reminds me a little bit of Mechanicus, which is a good thing to be reminded of because Mechanicus was great, probably one of the best Warhammer games the last couple of years. Um, in that it is a um, grid-based, turn-based strategy game um, with rogue-light elements. So um, the the kind of the the surrounding fiction, which will be is very helpful for this, is um, you, um, the three playable factions in the game each have reasons they can't die. One of the the faction. One of the factions is the Nighthaunt, who are ghosts, basically, like tortured spirits of the underworlds. So they can't die. They, you know, they can embark on a campaign, and if they fail, they can try again because they're ghosts. Um, but the other faction are the, the maggot kin of Nurgle, like the kind of servants of the plague god, um, who can basically be blobbed back out of the realm of chaos um, when things go wrong. And then finally, uh, the kind of poster faction for the game, the one that you start with, are the Stormcast, who are basically like paladins of of sigma the sort of thunder god um who are former mortals whose souls were kind of snatched up at the moment of death and then get sent back down as these kind of like armored warriors and when they die their souls are ripped back out of their bodies in a blast of lightning and they get uh reforged essentially and that's kind of part of their fiction uh and what i thought was nice is that they took this you know um detail about this poster faction for the game and used it to kind of um, define the kind of game this is through its kind of roguelike system, roguelite system. It really is light, but I'll explain how that works. So you uh, embark on a campaign. Um, there is a story, but the nice thing about this fiction is it, there can be a story where key missions will show up on certain runs or after you've certainly made, made, made a certain amount of progress. But if you lose all your uh, units or especially if your kind of champion dies, um, the run is over and you go back to the start and the missions are kind of re-randomized and you, you kind of um, begin again, but you carry a whole bunch of, of progress as your characters kind of learn stuff and gain equipment and things and then return. Um, as a, a turn-based strategy game, it's, it's, um, I'm, I like it so far. I think there's, there's a few issues. And so just to sort of lay them out at the top, um, it's interesting because I think in a lot of ways it's the kind of game that Tom Francis would be really interested in, in, in that it is a very sort of logic-driven, um, uh, inter- you know, a game about layered interactions between units and ability types, about kind of thinking your way through, you know, a series of effectively chess puzzle type scenarios with the limited amount of actions available to you. Um, one of its issues is there's no undo. And it's quite easy to commit to doing slightly the wrong thing. I think some of its systems and interactions are a little unclear, but that's the kind of thing that you dig into. And there are some bugs or UI issues, but otherwise I'm enjoying it. What's interesting about it is it is not an adaptation of the tabletop game, which is itself a um, obviously a turn-based game. It's not an adaptation of Underworlds either, which does now have a, a digital um, uh, equivalent, which um, is also a kind of grid-based uh, or in that case hex-based strategy game. Um, it's its own thing and they have uh, removed a bunch of stuff that traditionally makes Warhammer Warhammer like dice rolls um, in favor of I think there's some dice rolls for save rolls but they're really not very impactful compared to how impactful they are typically um, in favor of these kind of uh, very specific interactions that layer on top of each other in interesting ways so when I say that what I mean is um, 
you know, uh, units have cards and those cards have abilities on them. So this, you know, particular type of tank unit, heavily, you know, shielded guys called liberators, you put them next to another unit with the same ability and they shield each other and they get the stacking armor bonus. Or you have a character that can taunt enemies to come and fight them. And whenever you fight someone, you hit each other. The attacker hits first and the defender hits back. You have enemies, you have these ghosts enemies that explode when they die and do a knockback in a radius around them. And so in addition to the damage of the explosion, the knockback also potentially damages people if they get knocked back into other people. It's A lot of these interactions are fairly familiar from lots of different games, um, including things like Into the Breach. But layering them in that way, um, I think is just fundamentally satisfying. And I think a really good way to take turn-based strategy because it means that you're thinking about things other than am I in the position to do the maximum amount of damage and take the least? Uh, because you're constantly considering what you can do with all these little tricks, teleports and traps and uh, destructible terrain that can hilariously cause ghosts to fall to their death, <laughs> um, which is a very fun thing to be able to do. Um, and so far, sort of playing with all of that stuff, I am enjoying it. Like, I think I think there's, there's mileage that it doesn't feel like it's maybe like it hasn't kind of... Um, set me kind of brain on fire yet with the kind of possibilities afforded by that system but i do feel like i'm just scratching the surface of it and it's really cool to see those characters kind of remixed in a way that enables all of these interesting uh interactions what's the kind of meta structure for it like how are these battles taking place are you moving through an overworld or so yeah so a campaign takes place like this map and then you pick a node to do a battle and then it branches occasionally, but not very much. So you'll see when you pick a battle, you'll see what the likely rewards will be um, and um, what enemies you'll face. And that can affect kind of what you want to do. So I, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll back up a bit and explain how it works. So at the start of the campaign, um, you have your hero character and then you bring, I think, two squads with them and you unlock squads as you go. And the progression is kind of interesting. It's definitely a game where you couldn't beat it your first time, right? Leveling up your characters and leveling up and, in, and changing their gear is part of the point. So it's not that's the, the reason for the light in, in Roguelite is that. Um, and you pick two squads to bring with you. The, the squads and, and the heroes themselves do level up over time, which improves them. But also you can... Uh, give them equipment and swap that equipment out and that's quite granular it's like their armor their weapons their shields their secondary weapons and skills as well and all of those change things fairly uh, fundamentally and you can also swap them out whenever you want between missions so this uh this is going to sound like a granular very granular question yeah. but what's the interface like for doing that um it's not um it's not amazing i'm getting used to it it's basically like you click on the unit and then you have like an inventory style, you know, circles representing the different weapons and things. And then they highlight if you have a new thing to plug in, basically. Do they um, do anything like to make it easier to compare items and tell you what's what's best? Well, or? the nice thing is the items don't, it's not really stats. There's this rarity, you know, um, colors, the typical wow, you know, rarity colors for things. But it's not usually like stats. It's like a different weapon will have a different ability. Okay. And then a better, so for example, the, 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 the simple three is hammers allow you, give you a knockback ability. Um, swords give you a straight damage ability and axes give you a damage and stun ability. And they, uh, not every unit can take every one of those. 
Um, so that affects some things like the, the, the liberators that's talking about the kind of standard um, shield bearing kind of defensive unit can either have hammers or swords, uh, which is also true in Age of Sigmar, the tabletop game, which is a nice touch. Um, but you know, the way that works, it's very different. And so you swap out those, those, that gear based on the array of abilities you want. It's quite tactile in that way. It's not the thing of like, well, this is five more points of damage or something like that. It's like, there's a strategic reason to want one or the other based on what you're going into. Um, and then you have skills, which are like passive changes, but they're like passive changes to how rules work. So uh, I have a ranged unit of these heavy crossbows that can now apply a bleed effect, for example, or I have several for my hero, including one where if she charges a unit, she also applies a minus one damage debuff to that unit for the next turn. Or I can do one where every time she's charged before she takes damage, she heals a pip of damage. And those sorts of like interesting mechanical changes I find quite compelling. And I think one of the strength, one of the signs to me that the system works was that I, even very early doors in the game, found myself actively looking to change them based on what I thought I was going to need to do in the next mission. And I think that's a really healthy sign because if you're doing that, it means you're not just going, well, this one seems like it does the most damage. I'll stick with this. Hmm. This sounds awesome <laughs> so far. Like, this is the, uh, I really like these kinds of games, turn-based strategy games where in, you're, you're, making decisions about how to kit out your squad and stuff like that. I mean, it's, I, I talked about war pips last week, for example, mm. which is like, has that rhythm to it. The reason I ask about the interfaces is that it's the thing that tends to frustrate me most in these kinds of games is giving you equipment and then making it a flipping nightmare to compare and work out which to use and equip it and making that really tedious, rep repetitive, like gears tactics, for example, was a kind of XCOM like thing um, that was really bad for that. So it definitely has big icon syndrome. Like there's not a lot being displayed on screen at any time. And I think that speaks to what the iPad version of this would be like. <laughs> um, uh, I don't know if there is an iPad version out yet, but it has that feeling. Um, there are features that I'm grateful for. Like if you go to, in addition to, if you go to a unit and it's individual page, you can, you know, scroll, you can browse category by category through all of the equipment that unit can have but there's also a generic page for just all of the stuff I have, all of the, uh, they're called war spoils, which they don't need to be called. It could be gear, but um, you can go to the war spoils page and you can see every piece of gear you have and whether it's currently equipped to a unit or not, which I'm quite grateful for as a way of going, Oh, I own this and no one's holding it. Why is that? Um, rather than having to kind of go unit by unit. Um, I think there's a lot more to uncover that I haven't kind of dug into in that regard yet. Cause like I said, I haven't even started I'd be interested to know what people who don't have an attachment to the setting make of it because one, I do think, I do think there's, it's quite punishing for one thing. Um, it's quite hard. I know the expectation is that you'll lose and, and come back and try again in a game like this, but there's been times where like, I definitely didn't really understand some cue in the UI or exactly how a combat would be resolved until I did it. It does give you previews for damage numbers based on the decisions you make. So, and that is, you know, um, reactive enough to tell you that, hey, if you hit this enemy, it will die and trigger its death effect. So this unit will take this damage and this unit will be knocked back here and, you know, kind of like play through all of the cause and effect. But I have found it easy to kind of screw myself with a decision and that can be a little bit frustrating. Um, 
but it's in that bracket of like um, another game we've been playing a ton of recently that I won't talk about because uh, it's been talked about a ton on the podcast, but I've been playing Monster Train. And Monster Train is interesting in comparison because it's both good at this in terms of telling you what the outcomes of your decisions will be. And it can be very frustrating when, you know, you just make a mistake or something doesn't quite go that go go your way because you misunderstand something. And obviously that's, this is maybe me trying to get good myself, but I get some of that impression here. Uh, I don't know how, uh, you know, how much that will, how much that's just due to the UI, uh, how much that's just me getting used to the game. It does feel like um, if it were a little bit more responsive, I think it would, it would, it doesn't feel bad to play by any means. It looks nice. Um, I like the way it, it feels most of the time, but there are little pauses and hitches and giving actions and waiting for animations to play out that can sometimes sort of take you out of that kind of sense of immediacy. Um, looks really pretty. Yeah, like kind of like the battlefields being these kind of, well, very often it seems like it's doing that thing where you're battling on a bridge thousands of feet in the air and so mm. you can sort of see like uh, a world far below you dropping off into the distance, uh, which is really nice. Yeah, there's a really fun thing with Warhammer Art where Warhammer Art tends to be enormously vertical, I think, because it's there to kind of enhance your mind's eye sense of something that is ultimately 28 mil figures on a flat plane. Yeah. You know? And so they, in, in Warhammer art, the buildings are always absolutely fucking massive um, because you, it's there to fill in your imagination about what would happen if your characters looked up. Um, <laughs> because what, what they actually see is in my case, an increasingly porky man holding a, a, a bottle of doom bar and looking down on them from, from one from behind, you know, five o'clock shadow. But what you want to imagine is there's some towering like mausolea there to kind of explore. And this is the, that graphical choice in this game is really interesting that all your battles take place. There are kind of several settings based on the campaigns. It's a very high fantasy setting. So one of them is this, you know, mausoleum complex in the realm of death. And the other is a city built into a huge tree in the realm of life. And both of these give, give them this opportunity to have what feels like a whole world underneath the small spar of land that you're actually fighting on. Uh, in parallax and that's a kind of um quite a nice effect the other thing it has a lot of and this is like i always think about like what's going to happen if graham goes and plays this and then comes back and tells me about it is it certainly does have some voice acting oh no <laughs> um, and i i both quite like it and also hmm what what is your thoughts do they repeat the same lines too much or is the voice acting poor like no, it's, like what, what is it? No, almost none of the above. It's like they, I think the actors are all going for it real hard. And actually they've clearly written a lot of lines. I can imagine the spreadsheet, you know, um, like, you know, you'll get your standard liberators reporting and then you'll get lots of variants on. We'll go there for Sigma <laughs> going there, going there, striking a ghost for Sigma. <laughs> There's a way, I think, if you are in a Warhammer Fantasy video game, it's the same as is also true in um, in Vermintide. One of the best things about these games is getting to, uh, and the audiobooks they do, is is getting to discover how things are pronounced. And um, I think if you are a British actor shouting Sigma, you have to make it, you have to like, it has to have like an implicit H on the end. It always becomes Sigma every <laughs> single time, doesn't matter who's saying it. Um, and um and so you've got this very the, the hammy the hammy stormcast oh one thing i will say for it though one thing that's been nice with, with age of sigma is generally over the years is um because it's a new setting in a lot of ways it's been um 
steadily getting uh, more diverse and, and more interestingly diverse uh, than, than Warhammer has typically been. It's far from perfect by any means, but there's definitely steady movement in that direction. So I just thought I'd put a footnote here to say that it's nice to have a Warhammer game where the principal character is a woman and where uh, and where the first unit you recruit is also led by a woman and there are just loads of women in it. And that's great. Good for uh, good for the Stormcast Eternals because um, they, they've just decided that they don't want to deal with the the all of the shit that goes with um certain assumptions in the 40k community about who can and can't be a space marine um <laughs> and so um they just haven't which is nice um and uh she's cool uh freya the kind of the the lead stormcast character who's a very 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 angry paladin who whom smite things and then the other two, so they are the sort of, you know, paladins of order and that's how they express themselves. Lots of kind of voice actors acting voicingly uh, and yelling a lot. And then your two other factions in it are the Nighthaunt. And the whole point of Nighthaunt is they're kind of ghosts enthralled to the god of death who are being punished for something. You know, you don't become one of these kind of like, you know, ghost warriors unless you are a complete shit in life. But maybe this sucks for you. Maybe this is not what you want. And so they're all wretches and kind of, you know, <laughs> kind of crawling characters. And so, like, I, the, the voice actors for them are just really going for this sort of, like, punish me, don't punish me, <laughs> sort of thing all of the time. And then, and then you have Nurgle, which is like the most fun of the Chaos Gods, where they're all supposed to be happy, farty, um plaguey boys that are having a lovely time with the happy farty demons and uh, i haven't encountered them very much yet um or, or played as, as them yet um but their voice actor is just going going for it hard in a completely different way that um in this sort of like sing song slightly lisping sort of like um uh quite a strange performance but it's one of those performances where you can almost see inside the booth the voice acting booth it is both a good and a bad thing like you can see how animated it is um just through the way it's performed and i think if you're unfamiliar with the setting this stuff in combination might genuinely be baffling or it could be super engaging i don't know <laughs> you know the game is full of little lore snippets and things that are quite well written and are from the fiction for the for the main setting and that's nice to see and it's yeah i mean at least they're, at least they're not holding anything back I do have questions about this, so mm. this might be unfair to make you answer for Warhammer and people who's liking no, no. Warhammer, but I'm gonna I'm gonna do it anyway yeah. um, because if all of all of my friends are into Warhammer of some stripe, and everyone other than me, I think, on the Creating Crowbar is into Warhammer, and I'm not against Warhammer. I've just I never got into it. I was intimidated by the people I would see inside the Games Workshop. Mm. near my house well it was like the one the town over sort of thing and so i never went inside as a kid and so i was never like indoctrinated as a young man yeah uh, and obviously there's there's a lot of fantasy which is inspired by tolkien and there's a lot of like fantasy which combines that with maybe like uh, heavy metal imagery and like more punkish elements and like goes hell for leather on certain parts of it uh and like with warhammer obviously i mean it's been around for a long time so maybe it was one of the one of the earlier examples of that and obviously there's a lot of it and so i can understand 
the appeal of well, this is a this is like a, an ecosystem you can immerse yourself in. You mentioned audiobooks. There's audiobooks. There's games. There's board games. There's all like all this different stuff. A lot of novels. Um, but aside from that, like, what is it innately about Warhammer <laughs> that uh, makes it better or more interesting, or makes all of you so excited by its fiction? Because, because and to extract to go below yeah. further, like a lot of the time, these big media IP like things, like the Marvel Cinematic Universe or Star Wars, I get because there is like an emotional core and a set of individual characters that have like an emotional reality. Like I understand the appeal of Spider-Man. I really like Spider-Man. I understand the appeal of Luke Skywalker. I really like Luke Skywalker. I do not get like your man Nargo, the chaos God and his farty pants. Fellas. <laughs> like, I mean, like, uh, as, yeah, sounds lovely as like a, an, an army of people to command around in a, in a strategy game. But like, as as a thing to invest in as much as so many people I know do, I don't get. That's a big set of questions, Graham, for someone mm. who's done a podcast about this thing. Um, but, <laughs> but like, um, to answer for it, I think one of the interesting things about that question is I don't think there's one answer um, for why it's successful as a setting. I think it's, its success has been quite organic. And one of the best pieces of evidence for that is the amount of disagreement about what the setting actually means. And so I can give you an answer for me, but the answer you'll get from me is an answer that probably be accurate for a type of person uh, who is into Warhammer at this particular point in time. There's definitely a, a type of person who is uh, usually uh, someone who is into Warhammer as a teen, lapsed and came back to it with a bit of disposable income in their late <laughs> 20s or 30s. Um, which amounts for like Games Workshop extraordinary success. Like their their profits are just going up year and year and year and year. I think the there's a few reasons um, that I would put that success on. I think it is and has always had quite a distinctive voice as a fantasy setting. Um, you know, the origins of, of Warhammer as effectively, you know. Um, citadel and marauder producing miniatures for D D and then gaining their own kind of mutant you know war game around it um a part of it but also there's like uh people would point to different things but there's a very heavy gothic element there's a very heavy uh metal element as, as you pointed out there's a very heavy punk element it's very deeply rooted in like you know, British comic books and fantasy of the eighties, mm -hmm. particularly, and that gives it a, like a tone that you don't find in many other places, apart from the things that directly inspired it, like two thousand AD comics, for example, um, and sort of you know um, paperback fantasy of the the seventies and eighties, um, and its interpretations of that stuff and the way that it's it's moved forwards with that stuff are very distinctly its own. Um, and you see that bound up in the following that gets attached to people like John Blanche, who is, you know, a kind of like seminal Warhammer artist, but also a really distinctive, like Baroque fantasy artist in his own right. Um, so it does have, it does have a distinctive tonal identity. And that's not to say that's not the case for Dungeons and Dragons or Magic the Gathering or Star Wars or Marvel or anything else, but it's enough to say it does have a flavor that identifies it, I think, as Warhammer, basically, in and of itself. And then the other part of that is 
the way all of that stuff is set up is really to invite creative participation. And that is what is key to it. Like, you know, that, um, yes, they're war games, but they're also hobbies and a big part of the appeal is, uh, and actually it's interesting. This is, this is something that's very interesting about the origins of age of Sigmar as a setting is, um, Warhammer fantasy battle has its roots equally in Tolkien, but also in like historical war games. You know, the, there's this kind of overlap between people who would want to recreate the Battle of the Five Armies or something, and people who would want to recreate kind of the Battle of Agincourt um, <laughs> in, in a fantasy, in a kind of slightly fantasy setting. And um, as such, it grew a kind of detailed traditional fantasy world where every nation was marked out on the map, every faction was was deeply detailed. And this had the effect ultimately of completely stultifying the amount of creative freedom afforded by the setting. Uh, it was not really possible for you to create somewhere new in a world map that had been filled out. It was also impossible sometimes to justify my army of, I don't know, Bretonians, like chivalric Arthurian knights fighting your army of, um, this is a bad example because this is literally the uh, one of the core sets, but you know, your army of lizard men uh, because they're from different continents. You know, different different parts of the world, and that kind of fantasy, that style of world building didn't serve it especially well, even though it was a very evocative world that supported like role playing games really well, and subsequently video games really well. Whereas 40k always had the advantage of being such a huge and kind of um, maximalist fan- sci fi setting that you could always find somewhere to put your stories in. And so with Age of Sigma, they they blew it out into a a much more open and maybe initially too open or too non specific sort of like I say, planar fantasy multiverse to allow for space for people to make their own versions of things. And even now they put that freedom into things. So you'll, if if you read an army book, there will be archetypal characters and situations and factions and sub factions, but with the, always the kind of asterisk that these are ultimately prompts for you to go off and make your own version of this. Cause it's ultimately a modeling and painting hobby as well. And that, um, sort of spirit of like take it and make it your own i think coupled with like pretty strong and well-liked artistic pointers in terms of the gothic side of things the baroque kind of punk sort of baroque punk fantasy thing (laughs) makes that it just it's just appealing and that that's where you get into that kind of x-factor thing that's kind of hard to uh to pin down uh individual by individual but i would say it's kind of similar in some ways to other other hobbies where people sort of stake out their identities through the parts of it they choose to invest in, you know, you, um, and I think that's one of the reasons this is, this is becoming a much bigger aside, but I think that's one of the reasons it has such a big role in like the creative lives of almost always, let's be real. Uh, if we're talking about our, our own generation, middle-class English boys, <laughs> uh, in my case, who, you know, I went to games workshop after school when I was 11 because, my mum couldn't pick me up for a few hours after school and it was better than going to homework club. Um, (laughs) And, you know, that kind of particular overlap of like, um, you know, bookish creative sort of person and this big world where you can not only find play cool games or collect cool models, but carve out your own identity through the sorts of things that you invest in the sorts of the way you invest in them both personally and creatively. And that I think still has huge amounts of power. Um, in terms of staking out one's identity. As for what my identity, um, how my identity is expressed through Warhammer, apparently I'm just a huge goth 
and that's <laughs> it. So surprising. I mean, all I've done in lockdown is wear more black and grow my hair. So maybe surprising nobody. So the, um, I think that does that answer the question? I appreciate you kind of pulled a, opened a kind of Warhammer worms there, but there's, I think that combination is not found in very many things. You know, you see it, I think, in the way that people want to engage with Star Wars and are kind of rebuffed, right? They really want to make it their own, but they're not very good at providing those ways in. Similarly, Marvel or something like this. Warhammer kind of provides all these hooks for you to not only get into it, but live in it. And I think that's most what people, mostly what people want to do with their fandoms a lot of the time. Yeah, I, 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 I just, I do think that answers the question, and it's lovely to hear you talk about it as well. Like that was my real reason. <laughs> like just getting someone who's passionate about a thing to talk about it is, is fun. But like, yeah, I think it's that creative element is what I'm underestimating because, like, to me, you know, the, the Marvel universe, you've got Spider Man. I want to go read stories about Spider Man. Mm. Whereas when I look at Games Workshop stuff, I understand the appeal of the flavor. So, like, you're talking about Stormground. Uh, that's a genre of game I really like. The flavor of Warhammer I, I get, and so I want to go play that thing. It's the leap from there to wanting to go read a book about these characters. Uh, that That's what I don't get, because I don't... Like, to me, it's it's similar to Gears of War, where I quite like the flavor of Gears of War. Big, muscle-headed, broad-shouldered men running around with chainsaw guns, uh, like, it's quite Warhammery itself. Like, but I don't want to go read the Gears of War tie-in novels that I assume do exist. Right. Uh, no, it's just a flavor that I like to experience in a game. But, but I can understand it from that point of, you know, you're investing part of yourself through the creative process of painting the models, of building unit or you're of creating this like battle scenario for yourself that you're going to then playing like because a lot of the time if i think about star wars you know i don't necessarily want to go read about a new story of about luke skywalker i kind of want to go read a story about like a squadron of x-wing pilots because mm-hmm. <laughs> because i get that fantasy and so i from that point of view i can sort of get it and see how like you would become more invested in I don't know, a band of orcs or a particular yeah. chaos god or whatever and be like, these guys are fun and spend enough time with them that you start to imagine their inner lives and want to go read an awful about it. Well, what's interesting is none of the characters in this game have any other material about them anywhere. Hmm. Um, they are all new for this game, as is normally the case for Warhammer uh, like fiction. You know, it's it's there are obviously like series that follow the same characters over and over, but more broadly everything that gets published returns to the what is is really about the world as a whole and like some window into it rather than there being like there's no central plot in warhammer the closest you get is something like the horus heresy which is like a prequel series to warhammer 40k and at this point like a 50 60 novel series <laughs> even that jumps around an enormous amount in order to tell the story about like a whole galaxy in, in conflict like um there aren't main characters and i think that's presumably very deliberate because it means that there is no official way to engage with the story and that's what i find interesting is it's interesting to hear that your assumption is that one would play Stormground and be like i want to go read more about these characters because you can't what actually happens i think if you're a warhammer fan i was going to say nerd but you know warhammer fan is you think oh maybe i do want to collect stormcast eternals 
<laughs> and then you start thinking about paint schemes. Like the game has a little option when you're when you're setting up your army for for your next run in in through the game. You can configure your equipment and things for your starting units. And then the final thing is Army Painter. And it just lets you recolor the units. That's all it does. There's no gameplay reason to do this. But you can recolor, create saved color profiles, rename them. And so like the second or third thing I did after starting playing was go and create, you know, the Stormcast Eternals in the game come by default in, in the effectively like the standard Games Workshop stock paint scheme. Um <laughs> And I just and a lot of the paint schemes are associated with particular factions, and so I just made loads of the other factions for my for my own purposes. And I immediately was like, every time I fail, uh, I'm going to come back as a different faction, as a different storm host. I'm going to kind of, and I don't know why I'm doing this. I just <laughs> it just clicked in immediately. Like, oh, well, my first one was as uh, as uh, Hammers of Sigmar, and my second one was against as Celestial Vindicators, and my third one was as Anvils of the Heldenhammer, and my new one will be as uh like knights excelsior or something and like i'm just doing this to entertain myself because there's some part of my brain some cogs that start turning when i get a chance to kind of involve myself directly and then the dangerous thing happens i use their paint tool to try out some colors i think would look cool on a stormcast model and then <laughs> i'm fucking browsing the games workshop web store again aren't i thinking about it and thinking about it like oh how would i do an orangey coppery like br brass color <laughs> and like that's that's how it happens and it's because the, the through line is not i want to find out more about these characters is oh i could make this i could make this and it would look cool and yeah, yeah and that's that's how they get you i do get the appeal of that stuff but like it terrifies me because i oh, yeah. like my expendable income <laughs> <laughs> you know like uh, i i can see that this is a hobby that i could get into very easily on the painting side of things uh, and there's a games workshop in town in Brighton where I live and that I've been into and the, the staff are pretty quick to come over and start asking you questions and start showing you models and <laughs> and then I burst out the front door screaming and run away and don't come back again. Yeah, I mean, I sometimes wish we had webcams for these so that I you could appreciate the situation I have found myself in. <laughs> Um, because I am fucking surrounded by paint right now. You have no idea. And so, you know, it is definitely a, it's funny because th there's so much, you know, uh, the, the role models discord that was the kind of miniature section of the current crowbar discord split off to become its own server a little while ago. Cause it's, it was getting so big and there is so much time spent thinking about what it all, what this all means, <laughs> you know what I mean? There's something to be into. As a, a childless man of thirty three, um, and and what need it provides in terms of like this kind of creative outlet and things, and what it provides in terms of community and kind of shared language, and it is some combination of all of those things, and every orbiting subject, the expense, the amount people invest in it, um, all of the rest of it. I think it's it's it's, it's such a fascinating thing uh, to exist really in our in our culture and and i think you're right to identify that like there's such a close overlap with i think particularly us and, and our kind of professional peers in the last couple of years in terms of who who did and didn't run screaming from that store <laughs> at some point in the last 10 years and what that enduring appeal is i don't know if i have any of the answers to that necessarily except to say that i think i think there's a reason 
why they have done so well in the last couple of years. Even last year, or currently, with people unable to play games in person, they keep making more and more money and the numbers keep going up and up and up. And I think something that it does provide, and it's linked to that access, that sense of creative um, creative access to the setting, I would describe it as, is I think, rightly or not, it's a it's a kind of you know a creative hobby or like a you know a, a, a genre hobby a nerd hobby that provides a lot of sense of ownership over the things you're investing in and that's one of the things that illusory or not games are not great at providing um, that sense that you're making something that has lasting value even if it's just a miniature that you're proud of uh, and that sense that you're kind of you, that you own the things that you have bought, that you kind of surround yourself with the collection that you own, and then that that leads to the flip side: the oh god, why am I surrounded by these models <laughs> <laughs> side of things? But you know, I think that sense of um, that you, you know, in a in a this is maybe a very arch point, but I think in a world where we increasingly rent more or less everything, I think those those feelings have an enormous amount of value, and I think it's one of the reasons that not just Warhammer, but tabletop stuff generally and pen and paper role-playing are in the situation that they're in now. I think it is a, a response to several things, including a demographic finding itself with disposable income for the time being. But there's also, I think, a sense of... Does, I, I definitely have this. Like, I am playing less and less games, if I'm being honest. Um, you know, I dip into Resi and Cyberpunk and Monster Train and now this. Because if I have some free time, I kind of just want to paint because it feels more like a skill I'm developing. It feels more like something that I'm, I'm illusory or not. It feels more worthwhile. And that's a really interesting thing to negotiate when you're talking about games based on those settings as well. Um, in this case, I gain that little tickle of like, this, this time is kind of worthwhile time I'm spending investing in the strategy game because I'm spending it in a universe I like, and I'm having creative ideas for projects I might do in real life. Hmm. Man, there's a lot of different thoughts there. <laughs> um, I think I feel like there's a whole other pod on because I'm also playing fewer games, and that's been a trend for a while now. But that's maybe a separate pod. I mean, I think, <laughs> but I, 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 <laughs> I, I, I think I also think about this stuff in the context of. I mean, you mentioned being a, a childless 33 year old. I'm a with child 35 year old. <laughs> Uh, and he's my my son is five years old, and so I now when I think about something like Warhammer and Games Workshop, you also mentioned that you, know, you would go there after school when you were eleven years old. Um, I, when I look at these things now, I see them through my son's eyes and be yeah. like, you know, I'm partly appraising it as like, is that a hobby that I wish that he had? Is that a thing that I should introduce him to? And if so, when? Uh, and like the closest we have at the moment is Pokemon, mm. where there you know he he's seen a bunch of the anime, he's got a bunch of the figurines, he has like encyclopedias about Pokemon with all their stats and stuff like that that he's frighteningly good at memorizing, uh, you know. And uh, I know that Pokemon is going to be a thing in his life for probably at least the next ten years because there's video games that he hasn't encountered yet and all this, 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 the card game, this, you know, extending ecosystem of stuff that he will kind of grow with. Um, and that's a thing we can share in because I'm not like a huge fan of Pokemon, but I played the games and I quite like the world of it and that sort of stuff. Like it's, it's fun and it's age appropriate. Uh, Warhammer 
when he's five, probably not age appropriate. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> but but when he's eleven, twelve, that like I, I see value in introducing him to that. Not only because it's the thing that we could do together, but because it has those like creative skills connected to it of creating like the painting or just being encouraged to engage creatively with the, with the fictional world uh, in a way that it's not true of a lot of media properties. Well, I think maybe this is something that we have in common, you know, going back to our own youths. But like that, those years of my life of being into Warhammer were also the years where I was spending my Saturdays working in an internet cafe, um, like making sure they had Counter-Strike updated and all the latest cool mods for Half-Life, basically. <laughs> and then if I wasn't, you know, thinking about Warhammer, I was thinking about Half-Life mods I wanted to make. I was trying to make stuff basically yeah. everywhere all of the time. And that combination, you know, and, and this still happens, right? Like, uh, you know, um, something that is professionally very close to me, but, you know, this is what young people, kids, teenagers still do, right? Whether it's Roblox, whether it's Minecraft, whether it's you know, something else, like this desire to like, you know, take these settings and put your own stamp on them and engage with them creatively and the role these settings play as creative on ramps to creativity i think especially for for young people is enormously valuable and it is the big difference i mean and and it does you know i was a kid who loved spider-man and would draw my own spider-man comics but it's not quite the same right like i was never invited to do that um by the setting or by the people creating it and so i think there's something that like I'll always advocate for in, in these sorts of hobbies. Um, and it's, yeah, it's interesting. That lens of like, it almost doesn't matter which one it is that ends up grabbing your son's attention ultimately, because I suspect mm. one of them will, right? Because obviously they grabbed yours as well. It just wasn't quite the same ones as me or, or someone else. It's weird because there's already a, an ecosystem for a lot of this stuff uh, uh, with the, uh, because of YouTube, essentially. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're kind of, I'm wandering off topic maybe too far here, but like he, he watched, um, Paw Patrol say, uh, on, on TV. Uh, and so he wants to get the Paw Patrol toys, but then he'll watch YouTube videos that enterprising adult men have made in which they use Paw Patrol toys in order to like tell their own Paw Patrol stories or put up Paw Patrol figuring down a slide into a bucket of water <laughs> or whatever, you know, like mm -hmm. that sort of stuff. Uh, and we, we, we ration how much of, <laughs> of the stuff Ira gets to see and we're pretty careful with it and that sort of stuff to limit screen time. But the way he views it as he is watching these videos to get ideas. That's right. what he says. He wants to, he wants some ideas and then he watch the video and then he wants to go do it himself. And it's like, it's inspiring him to then be like, put his own spin on it and like, oh, what can I, what can I do with my toys to then like create this experience? Um, and so like, yeah, well, like I think there's a lot of hand wringing about children and creativity, but I think it's innate. And for me as a kid, it was Star Trek. Mm -hmm. Like I watched the next generation and then I watched, I guess, Voyager and deep space nine when I was pretty young. And because it was, there was three iterations of the same thing. I was like in my head, Hey, there's a formula here. And I started right. drawing like my own USS 
spaceships and coming up with my own crew and who would the captain be and writing bios for them and stuff like that. That was my nerd thing rather than Spider-Man comics. Yeah. I find that, I find that kind of world building fascinating and, and how important those templates are. Um, and that's something Warhammer's really good at actually. It's feels like, yeah, as you say, it probably doesn't matter what thing I, uh, he gets introduced to, uh, but you can't help as a parent, but try and, try and control your children to steer, <laughs> to steer them towards the thing that's not trash. If only so that you're not like mind numbingly bored when your kid won't stop talking about it. I feel like that might be inevitable. And I say this as someone, as a former child, as a former boring child, <laughs> um, I will say this, my ability to never shut the fuck up about Star Wars to my mum and dad <laughs> has directly led to the last uh, eight years of this podcast, however long it's been. <laughs> so, you know, oh, well. mixed blessings. Mixed oh, well, blessings. I feel like my entire career is born of the fact that I would not shut the fuck up about video games of some stripe or another. So, Yeah. My friends won't listen to me anymore. I have to write this down. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Well, that's a, yeah. Speaking of shutting the fuck up about video games. <laughs> well, so here's the thing. I, I, just to, just to kind of land the, the glider back down on, on Stormground for a moment. I'd be really interested in what you made of it. Because I do think it's sort of... I feel like I don't... I can't quite pass the amount I am pleased to see a setting I like kind of brought to life in this way in a genre I quite like. I will say, I, it doesn't strike me as like the, the most dazzling execution of this genre I've ever seen, but there's enough, and it, I do feel like it's been another experience of me, but there's been enough like really positive interactions with it already that like I want to play more when we're done recording this. And so I, I would be really interested to know how you feel about it with no attachment, right? Beyond, what, is it a good game? Well, you've made it sound good, so I'm going to give it a go, and I'll let you know. Exciting, exciting, and I, I feel I feel vicariously like, um, just 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 go with the voice acting, all right? Just go with it. Just go with it. Just go with it. Just go with it. <laughs> I'll go. I'll go with it. It'll be fine. In the meantime, shall we do some questions from questions? Yes. Good. What? What are the, what are the <laughs> okay. questions? What? Oh, oh shit! I didn't even ask that. The only question I don't have an answer for. Actually, I do. They're right here. There's two of them. The first one comes from Mick, who writes, "Hey, crabs and crustaceans. I played a hell of a lot of Subnautica and really enjoyed it, but I seem to have about a two-week engagement with games before the magic fades a bit and I'm ready to read a novel or go outside. What a nerd! Um, so I put Subnautica down. I later returned to it." Uh, and finished it without using a guide and feel it's one of the best games of the last decade. Do you have any games like this that you're incredibly glad that you stuck with? On the flip side, what about games that you're incredibly glad you put down? Every Assassin's Creed falls into this category for me, as after about 15 hours, I know that I've seen everything the game has to offer, and I'm happy to poop around for another 5 or 10 hours seeing the sights before I'm done. I'm also a huge Soulsborne fan, but Sekiro came out after the birth of my first child, and I simply don't have the mental fortitude to face those bosses. I played up through a very intense mid-game boss, uh, Genikuro, who I bested, and then happily put the game down, feeling I'd gotten more than my money's worth. Games are so long these days, and usually by the time I put them down, I'm frustrated or disgusted with them. Far Cry 4 and 5, cough, cough. <laughs> so it's a nice feeling to put something down and feel good about it. Any notable examples of this for y'all? 
I look forward to the pod every week. Keep it up, Mick. A big old burn on me, given I said earlier that uh, Far Cry 4 and 5 and the Far Cry series were some of the few that I complete uh, and enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in terms of like ones I'm glad I put down, like I agree about Assassin's Creed and I agree mm. about most Ubisoft games, which I don't, I don't mean as a dig <laughs> Ubisoft games, really, because uh, I, I think there are lots to recommend Assassin's Creed, particularly the last two or three. Um, but they do take up a lot of time and they yeah. are too long and they are quite samey. So I tend to, with an Assassin's Creed game, play it for like maybe four or five hours and then put it down. And I never regret that. And I probably do the same with most open world action-y adventure type games. Mm. Um, anything with a big map, I'm probably going to play it for six hours and then yeah, not continue past that point. Because even if I'm having a nice time, I can't shake the feeling that it's a somewhat waste of a time. Which comes, I guess, back, links back to what you were saying earlier about painting more often rather than playing games. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I mean, I think it, uh, poor old, poor old Ubes. Like it sort of feels like we kind of dug in on here a bit. But I have the same thing. My answer would be the same. I find like the last, the last Assassin's Creed game I played was Odyssey, which I really, really liked until I abruptly stopped. And I think I abruptly stopped the moment I kind of had this combination realization that I wasn't doing anything new, and also I'd kind of seen the breadth of experiences that the game was going to give me. Um, because I do think there's like the length of the potential length of those experiences definitely outstrips both the amount of new features and also the kind of aesthetic pleasure of the worlds themselves. That's not a bad thing necessarily. I think, you know, games can be time sinks just for the sake of being time sinks. And that's fun, particularly if, and it's fine, particularly if the worlds are pleasant to be in. But I think you have to draw a line under it. In fact, I, I would put it the other way around. They, it's too long is one way of putting it. Um, but the other way of putting it is they just sustain a certain amount of engagement and then it's on you to determine when you're done and that's good and healthy. And maybe the way to kind of redeem that design is that that's intentional, I hope. I always remember having the experience of reviewing Assassin's Creed 3 for PCG and really disliking it and thinking it had some huge problems, but being sort of tortured by the awareness that I was a, a man trying to sprint through it in three days for review knowing that for some people this would be the only big game they bought this year and you know boy it would give them a lot of stuff to do you know they would be occupied by this piece of entertainment for a long period of time and not really wanting to poo-poo it on the, that basis but on the strength of its individual mechanics so i do have that answer i think as it pertains to like games more broadly um, I've been thinking about this because I um, I go through big waves with my painting. And often if I am unable to motivate myself to paint, what I am doing is sinking time into one game or another, like Destiny or, or WoW or something like that. And recently I've been really off Destiny. Like I maybe log in once a week, but I'm really not doing very much in it. Not because I dislike it. In fact, there's lots of cool things happening in Destiny at the moment. Um, but because it serves this psychological need for kind of less stimulating experience in a way or a less engaged experience it requires less from me and so when i have more energy or i feel a bit better and i have more to give i end up doing something that takes more from me which is sort of an interesting kind of balance to strike but that doesn't mean i think those kind of like other experiences shouldn't exist right 
Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. Like, a lot of the time, the games I do end up playing, I don't think are any more worthwhile than playing through an Assassin's Creed. It might simply be that they're less story-heavy or they're turn-based, and so it's easier to listen to a podcast at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> and so I can kind of create my own balancing act of how engaging the experience is with the game, uh, as opposed to Assassin's Creed, where... I don't know. Maybe I don't need to listen to the to the people talking at me to give me the missions, but I feel bad if I'm not. Right. Well, they are immersive experiences, right? Like, I definitely think it's like I've you know, it's the same with me in Monster Train. It's like for me, it's the same as could you run this game in a window? Would you feel like you were getting the full experience if you ran this game in a window? Most sort of roguelike deck building card game things work like that. Um. Um, I don't think that is the case for an Assassin's Creed game necessarily. And that's always going to be, I think, the interesting double bind of it is they have some of the breadth and shallowness of... Um, when I say idle games, I really don't just mean idle games specifically or casual games. I mean, the category I put WoW in half the time. Like games that you just you just noodle away in. You just, you just while away some time. Comfortable games that you just sort of spend time in. But the, the tenor of those experiences and the amount of, you know, kind of graphical fidelity and all of that is actually like an order above those other experiences. And I think that gives them a kind of confused middle identity um, between being like, uh, particularly as they kind of take more and more cues from much more honed action games like Uncharted and things like that. So you have these moments that feel like that demand your full attention and then spans of time where you really could just be listening to a podcast. And that's a, that's a, it's an interesting phenomena on that basis. But I wouldn't say that makes it bad. Yeah. How about the other side of this question? Um, like games that you're glad that you stuck with. Um, I think I have an answer for this. You go first. All right. My answer for this would be uh, new Hitman. All three of them. <laughs> um, I, I, I Maybe I've talked about this on the pod before, but like I think I had a slow realization because I think I went through a journey with, I was never a huge Hitman person beforehand. I was always more into like Thief and, and Deus Ex and things. Um I think because I found the settings more engaging and the kind of systems easier to pass. And so I always sort of assumed that the new Hitman wouldn't be for me. And then partly that's because I had friends who were super into a particular way of playing Hitman. And therefore I felt that that's what I should try and imitate. And it took me a while to get used to the idea that like, actually I quite like playing through the kind of breadcrumb trail story stuff before experimenting a bit more. Um, I enjoyed them as both kind of like straightforward kind of action games and as these sandboxes. And then I had that kind of realization, which I think I did talk about towards the end of, uh, of the series with Hitman 3, new Hitman 3, that, oh shit, this is one of the best stealth sandbox games there has ever been. You know, <laughs> this is just one of, not just, you know, the best of the series, but like, you know, that, that kind of combination package that we've ended up with is legitimately one of the best games of its kind ever made. And I don't think I would have had, I wouldn't have discovered that if I hadn't kept going back to it over and over again, over years of talking about it on this podcast <laughs> and eventually found my own way of playing it. And, and that, um, that I think is, is something I'm genuinely glad that I stuck with. Damn. I wish I'd gone first. So <laughs> it's not, it's not the same game, but when, when we looked at this question earlier, I wrote down in my notebook here, blood money, Hitman blood money. Hmm. Because so I played the Hitman one, 
what was it called? Hitman Codename 47 demo uh, when it was given away with PC Gamer in like, God, what year would that have been? 2000, maybe? Ish, yeah. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's, it's a really good mission in which you're like outside a Chinese restaurant. There's a guy that drives up in a limo. He's inside the restaurant for like five minutes or something like that comes out gets back in his limo drives away and there's lots of different ways you can approach that scenario you can find a sniper rifle and go to the top of a tower you can plant a bomb on his limousine you can break into the restaurant you can i think you can dress up as a chef i think you can take his chauffeur's outfit like when this came out this was remarkable like there weren't other action games letting you kind of approach these sorts of scenarios or do these sorts of things uh rest of the game didn't live up to that hitman 2 and 3 which i don't recall the name of um contracts and something else uh they were bad in my eyes i think tom francis defends them but they became more like traditional action games and kind of supported and encouraged like, in some ways, you could argue that the audience was not yet ready for Hitman uh, and that mm-hmm. kind of stealth game experience, not at the scale at which, obviously, they they needed it to get to um, to be profitable, I suppose. So they were more action games and not very good ones in my eyes. And then Blood Money, which is the fourth game in the series, they released a demo for that, which I played, which is basically just the tutorial Right, which just teaches you like how to flip coins in order to distract cards. It's not like a. I feel like the later games had better tutorials for Hitman. It's not an interesting mm. tutorial mission, and that was it. And so I played that and was like, "Oh, I guess this is going to be another kind of guff Hitman game." Um, but I'm glad that I, you know, for the fourth time tried it and persevered because blood money was brilliant like blood money was the first time i feel like they got the hitman formula right and Mm. it wasn't perfect um but they got it right for the length of the game like there are points at which it like falls apart it's simulation of like npc behavior and stuff like that like that isn't yet good enough that it acts in a way that you expect it to, which you really need it to when you're doing like social stealth stuff. Um, but it was good enough and it kind of s- stuck to its guns in, ter- in terms of the type of game it wanted to be. Yeah. And then, of course, Absolution followed it up. And it was, <laughs> it was, was CAC again. Um, but I'm glad that I stuck with Blood Money because for a long time that was like not just one of my favorite games of that type, but just one of my favorite games, period. It just occurred to me how funny it is that, like, obviously we had very similar answers to this, and, like, we both had the same ideas for both of them, both both halves of this question. And I think it's kind of funny, isn't it, if you think about this from the outside, if someone didn't really know about games, that we've basically just said, these games about assassins for both of them. Like, <laughs> it's like... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This particular... Yeah. Uh, I'm really glad I gave up on this particular kind of assassin game. But this other kind of assassin game, man, stick with that one. Anyway, <laughs> video games. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's always people... Uh, there's always people that, that say that, you know, Assassin's Creed 1 was a legitimate assassin game. Like, it was a game about assassinating individual people and mm. sneaking around environments. Not sure if that was ever true. At least not true in the, the way that it has been for the Hitman series at various points. No, but maybe that's it. Maybe maybe we've we've hit on some kind of universal theory here. But like, 
Um, yeah, actually, you know what? I will make an arch point about this in touch <laughs> we were talking about earlier. I think the thing that helped me finally click with Hitman through the new ones was the fact that they provided those on-ramps and I knew there was a ton of creativity, and I use that word seriously, lurking in that system, but I needed to be guided into those mechanics in a way that gave me access to that. And I don't think that makes me less valid as a Hitman player. It just meant I was coming at it with a different set of context, right? And different expectations. Like I kind of wanted the story first, and then I'll go back and play in a particular way because that's how I like to play. And because they provided that, they gave me access to all of that kind of creativity that was lurking under the under the hood. I think that is missing from the Assassin's Creed series. Once you've mastered the mechanics and maxed out your leveling and stuff like that in the new ones, there's no... There are, there, well, there are a few really interesting ways to apply that knowledge or then take it and run with it in ways the game maybe isn't expecting. And I think that means that your continued investment is um, that sort of low-level satisfaction of, of finishing things and clearing to-do lists rather than creating anything, um, even if it's just for yourself. And I think that runs through a lot of experiences for me. You know, my my I had a deep... Uh, rekindling of my relationship with World of Warcraft starting in November, December last year and through to a few months ago now. And that didn't end because I got bored of the game necessarily. It ended because I finally got all of the pieces of an outfit I really wanted. <laughs> I really wanted to dress up as a vampire. I really wanted to dress up as a vampire. It took a long time and then I did. And then I finished World of Warcraft again. Um, and you know, I I think for me that is the thing that will ultimately like spur these really long time investments is that sense like I can make this my own, and then as soon as I I don't want to anymore, that's it. I mean, that's completely valid. Did you, did you when you, when you did you feel sad? <laughs> that's that's well, that's my question. Uh, About what and when? <laughs> uh, um, when you got finished the outfit and you realised that you had completed the quest, essentially, that was motivating you to play the game, did you feel, like, some form of grief? Did you feel bereft because you were having a nice time and now mm. you had fulfilled something that maybe you didn't want to fulfil? Because this is an experience I've had in a lot of games where I am being motivated by something that's not the main plot line and I'm having a lovely time, but then once I accomplish it, oh, I'm done. And I can't motivate myself to keep playing. But I was having fun up until the point at which I had lost motivation. And so I'm like, I want the motivation back. I feel, I feel mm. sad now. <laughs> it's interesting. I didn't. Um, but I did have the similar thing of like, I lost my motivation without realizing that's what was happening. I think because I did have other plans. It's like, well, after I've done this, I'll do this. And after I do that, I'll do that. And, and WoW is obviously bottomless in its provision of things to do. And actually, I almost realized with some relief oh, no, my, my real motivation has been done. I can step away from this for a bit now, <laughs> you know? Um, and there are other things I want to achieve outside of World of Warcraft that maybe I will go and do. <laughs> um, and so, no, I didn't, but I do get that feeling. Like, I think there's there can be an emptiness that follows achieving the video game thing you were trying to achieve. Yeah. Emptiness all around. <laughs> that's why i was playing world of warcraft in the first place <laughs> um our next question comes from ross who writes dear closed circuit i've noticed 
the people from the colonies tend to use the phrase, I beat the game, whereas those from Blighty use, I completed or I finished the game. Could you please make a series of ill-judged generalizations as to why this might be? Ross. <laughs> uh, 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 do we yeah, want to take the bait? <laughs> um, I think this is an interesting... I, I have thought about this before. Um, and my my sort of thought previously was that it's interesting how different ways of expressing this encode different um, notions of like what games necessarily are. Like I always that beating the game, like the phrase beating the game always got, it started to get a bit stretched when you started talking about non, you know, not just non-competitive, but non-challenge based experiences. Yeah your DRSs and your gone homes and hmm. so on, where you can still say you completed those or you finished them, right? Um, in the same way that you can say you finished a book. And I feel like the nice thing about saying I finished this game or didn't is it doesn't really encode too much about what that experience actually is. Whereas I think the other ways of speaking about it, I don't necessarily know that it breaks down that neatly by region because you do hear everything everywhere, I think. But um, it does feel like you start to see these places where different like certain attitudes towards what games were very deeply encoded in the language that's being used my unfounded assumption was that it's because uh there were more arcades in america and mm. beating a game is is a phrase born of the adversarial relationship you have with an arcade cabinet that's eating your money every time you die right you know, we, we had arcade arcade games in the uk but i don't feel like there were as many arcades certainly where i grew up there wasn't anywhere i could go to play arcade games whereas i feel like we had more of a culture of home computing in the uk you know mm, we had definitely yeah we had the the spectrum and the amiga and the commodore 64 and that sort of stuff so games were more a thing you did in your home more of a personal experience like reading a book and and less adversarial because you're not even if you're playing bubble bobble uh, and you're having to like, you know, you're getting the continued countdown and having to add a life or whatever, it's not actually costing you money to do so. Um, but I don't know if that's actually true or if that's just like a neat apocryphal. Narrative. I think, I think you could write an article on that basis and just <laughs> leave the, leave the comments to chance. Um, the, um the good uh it's the thing you can't can't catch apocrypha anymore it's all apocrypha the um i was thinking about this because i remember when i was a kid and i appreciate we told a lot of childhood stories today i would never say either of these i would always say i've seen the ending <laughs> and that would take in a very different meaning now with youtube i think but like I played games because I wanted to see the cartoon at the end. <laughs> that is why I did things like whether that's like, you know, Sega CD, like, you know, kind of FMV games or whatever, which I probably shouldn't have been playing. Um, <laughs> like there's, you know, there was always a sense of like your reward for getting to the end of the game was you saw the ending, you saw the end sequence, you saw the cutscene, or you saw Sonic beat Robotnik or whatever. I think one of the reasons that I never clicked with Mario, even though it's definitely the superior game and I was a Sonic kid, is because Sonic always kind of promised like a fight in space at the end. Whereas Mario would always, you know, 
I don't know, you'd, you'd have a nice time and there'd be a, you know, it would end. You didn't, want to, you didn't want to rescue the princess. You prefer so, space. To I think, go. I think. It, it's a, <laughs> okay, wow. Um, yes. Um, the, I mean, it's more that, it's more that like, you know, that, that game, you know, Super Mario, right, had a kind of coy relationship with what its ending was going to be. Sorry, Mario, it's a different castle, right? Mm. You know, like it almost hangs the lampshade on the pointlessness of endings in its first act if you were going to do a kind of critical reading there, right? It's like, hey, Mario, don't worry, this isn't going to escalate any further. You're just going to keep going, keep having fun with our really tight mechanics. Whereas the promise of Sonic in this regard was always, you're going to keep going faster and faster and faster, and it's going to get weirder and weirder and weirder. And that's not a good thing, but it's going to happen. And I find something about me finds that more compelling. Uh, or did as a child but no i really did attach the uh, attached so much of what it meant to like that was that was what you got out of seeing again like um i used to rent most of the games that i played like you know mega drive cartridges from blockbuster or whatever yeah and like getting to see the ending in the weekend that you would have it was like that was the big play that was that was a true achievement um in that era i appreciate it. i'm just this is it's become old man story time at this point but you know in yeah, my I know, day I, I that was poggers <laughs> i saw the ending of desert strike within a weekend incredible what, what was the game that you had to rent the most times in order to see the ending oh fuck uh earthworm jim <laughs> See, like, even back then, I never completed games, really. So uh, I'm pretty sure we did rent Earthrum Gem at one point. But I never, certainly I never completed it. Maybe my older brother did. Um, I think my dad helped. So it would have been the case of we rented it, played it a bit, had fun with it, take it back, and then the next weekend we'd rent something else. The real dumb stuff was when we were, like, renting racing games that had no ending. Mm. <laughs> you know... Then what is the point? Pole position, where you just like upgrade a car a bunch of times, um, and like have all this progress that's then saved to the cartridge that you then take back, and then rent it again the following weekend when you get your pocket money and hope that your save is still there. <laughs> you say that. I think one of the other games I rented the most was Road Rash, which I fucking loved. I and love I think, Road Rush. I played yeah. that in my cousin's house. This is definitely just old man's story. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I'm trying to think, like, because when I say like you saw the ending, like it didn't really matter what the ending was. If the ending was just like some music and like a racing driver was giving you a thumbs up, that still counts. That still counts. That's the end of the story. You got a thumbs up. Like sometimes a lady would wave a flag. That's <laughs> like that was the ending. Um, but no, that's definitely what we would play for. I don't know how this relates to the question. It's probably not, but still. No, I, I think that's that's fair. That's definitely why I was playing a lot of games as well. Like the games I played most were still sports games. It's that like you know, sensible soccer, sensible world of soccer, that sort of stuff. But it's like when I would play um, Super Street Fighter Two Turbo, the uh, fighting game, uh, it was to see the ending of the different characters. Like I wanted to see mm. Blank- Blanca be reunited with his mum and pushing a shopping trolley in a supermarket with his big orange hair and bare green chest. That's what I wanted to see. Indeed. Like, I mean, this is the thing, right? Where what we've established is, while some say I finished the game and others 
maybe culturally say I beat the game. You say I reunited Blanca with his mum. And that is that is the gift that Street Fighter gave you. It's the gift it gave to all of us. <laughs> and that's all the time we have for questions tonight. If you would like to send us a question of your own, you can do so by emailing us to questions at creatingcrowbar.com. You can also visit creatingcrowbar.com to find more episodes of the Creating Crowbar. You can also find a link to our Discord community on creatingcrowbar.com. It's filled with lovely people. You can follow us on Twitter at creatingcrowbar and also at reply is there if you want to send a question. You can find more of our content hashtag content (laughs) on youtube including every episode of the podcast and supplementary series like chris and tom playing dark souls together and you can support the podcast by going to patreon.com slash creating crowbar um many of you already do and we appreciate (laughs) it greatly uh we don't offer any rewards just our heartfelt thanks great outro graham (laughs) <laughs> uh, yeah i'm gonna I'm, i said at the beginning i'm gonna judge alex less when he stutters over his words doing this every week i'm in no position to judge anybody for their performance in the outro because i've done it every way it's possible to do it <laughs> as long as you calibrate your expectations with a narrow low band well there's only one thing left to say Thanks for, Thanks listening, for listening, everybody. everybody. <laughs> oh, okay. I started high, and then I was like, "Your games, games, doing this normally." I got to keep going, uh, and here we are. Thanks for Thanks listening, for listening everybody. everybody. <laughs>